Hi, I'm Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology. I hope you all are doing well and are healthy during the coronavirus pandemic. Today, I'm pleased to be speaking to Dr. Rosie Scuchamari, current chair of the Therapeutics Committee of the Canadian Rheumatology Association, Dr. Evelyn Sutton, president of the Canadian Rheumatology Association, and Dr. Marianne Fitzcharles, past chair of the Therapeutics Committee of the Canadian Rheumatology Association. They are the authors of an article entitled Hydroxychloroquine, a potential ethical dilemma for rheumatologists during a COVID-19 pandemic, which is now available as an open access article on the Journal of Rheumatology's website at jroom.org. Rosie, Evelyn, and Marianne, I want to thank you for writing your editorial and for joining me in an agreeing, and agreeing to discuss this timely editorial. Thank you for having us. Thank you. My Great. We're looking forward so, to it. First, if you could just briefly summarize the key points of your editorial. So, um, with the intense media attention on antiviral agents as a potential in the treatment of coronavirus-associated disease or COVID-19, uh, our editorial discusses the challenges and ethical dilemmas that rheumatologists might face in clinical care. Um, these drugs have been trusted treatments for a range of rheumatic diseases over the past 70 years, especially in the management of systemic lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. For pregnant patients with rheumatic diseases, hydroxychloroquine has been an important drug due to its safety. When the antimalarials were found to have in vitro potential to reduce activity of this virus, a number of clinical trials were rapidly initiated to test its efficacy and safety for the treatment of COVID-19. One of the studies that is discussed in our paper by the French group of Gautrin et al, uh, they published a small non-randomized study of 42 hospitalized patients who showed improved nasopharyngeal clearance of the virus in the treated groups, which were with hydroxychloroquine plus azithromycin, hydroxychloroquine alone, compared to placebo. But this study was small with a lot of methodological issues. With the interest in antimalarials, as rheumatologists, we found ourselves placed as the most common prescriber of an old drug that could have the potential to be a lifesaver in this viral pandemic. But given the, the significant media attention, um, we saw potential for a supply shortage of these drugs. Anticipating this, the question we felt that had to be asked was, who should get treatment? As rheumatologists, uh, we needed to advocate for the continued availability to treat patients with chronic rheumatic diseases, such as lupus and, and, and inflammatory arthritis, where this continuation could lead to uh, flu disease flare, significant morbidity, and even mortality in patients with lupus. Um, until good clinical evidence was available, we recommended that the use of antimalarials to treat COVID-19 be limited to the hospital or intensive care unit settings within the context of a formal research protocol. We felt strongly against the off-label use outside of these settings. We also urged producers and suppliers to be proactive in ensuring sufficient supply. But despite these the strategies, um, in the event of limited supply, we were concerned that as rheumatologists, we may have to choose which of our patients should remain on these drugs. 
this, this ethical decision will be difficult. Um, rheumatic disease patients with life-threatening illnesses such as lupus, or pregnant patients we felt should have priority to continue treatment. And those in those in inflammatory arthritis whose disease is well controlled and, re and receiving additional DMARDs, well, antimalarials in this case could be considered less essential. Deprescribing antimalarials would require empathetic discussion with the patient and it could be framed in the context of a societal contribution with the opportunity to have some influence on the outcome of others. Whether these steps would tr truly influence supply, well, that, that was an unknown. However, what we urged was that any recommendation on who should get treatment be based on the tenets of evidence-based medicine. Thank you. Um, any further comments by Dr. Fitzcharles or Sutton? So, um, you know, perhaps the reality is what prompted us to uh, to consider uh, right. even writing an article like this. And I think uh, at this time, we've all been um, bombarded with a lot of media coverage of uh, COVID. And uh, very, very early in this pandemic, um, hydroxychloroquine popped up. And... Um, I was uh, prompted to read a little bit more about this when um, I heard about it in the public media. And uh, it was very, very quickly taken up by uh, regulators, uh, governments, political people as well. And uh, my first thought was, uh, well, let's, let's see what is the evidence. And um, not being a virologist or an infectious disease person, I wondered how on earth hydroxychloroquine could uh, could impact this this virus. So that was sort of uh, one of the promptings for us to begin to look at uh, the subject a little more clearly and a bit more closely. Um, when I started looking at the two studies that have been very, very widely publicized, I was quite impressed by the poor quality of the studies and um, that the, this treatment was being advocated on the basis of very feeble evidence. So that was when I got together with my two esteemed colleagues and said, let's, let's get something going. Thank you. Um... Dr. Sutton, any further comments or are you happy? No, I completely agree. And early on, there was almost a stampede of, of people wanting to prescribe this and advocating for it, and uh, it was quite alarming. So, Dr. Fitzgerald, uh, let, us, let us in the charge. Great. I'm glad you certainly did. So, um, Dr. Fitzgerald, I know you sent me an email with some, what was it, like over 2,000 PubMed hits when you search for it. So are there any updates since you wrote the article of um, any papers you'd want to highlight or summarize? Um, right. Writing of your article. <laughs> right. So, Bill and colleagues, I think we know that our management of patients must be evidence-based. And therefore, we're looking for good, solid evidence. Um, 
at this point, um, we really do not have any good evidence that this drug is working. So where does all of this come from? First of all, we have a lot of preclinical studies. So if you take hydroxychloroquine and you add it to uh, a Petri dish that has got bugs in it, it actually works quite well. It prevents uh, viral infectivity of cells. However, we know that what happens in preclinical studies does not necessarily translate into clinical studies. So with that, what, what evidence do we have in the clinical world? So Rosie mentioned the first study, which came from a, a group in Marseille, and um, they gave these patients, about 20 patients, both hydroxychloroquine as well as azithromycin, and they reported 100% viral clearance. So when we look at the studies that are being uh, published now, there are some studies looking at viral clearance. There are one or two studies looking at different doses and what is the outcome regarding viral clearance. And we've got a retrospective study from the vets in the US um, looking at both death as well as ventilation. So the viral clearance, the original study from Marseille, um, showed wonderful viral clearance. A subsequent study has been done in parrots, and this was uh, led by Molini, and uh, they took 10 patients and looked at their viral clearance. They gave them exactly the same amount of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. They looked at viral clearance over a period of uh, six to five to six days. And in fact, they found that eight out of the 10 patients still had virus. So they did not clear the virus. So this is questioning the first study. Um, subsequently, there have been two other studies from China, also looking at viral clearance. And one study was quite a big one. It was, uh, they looked at 150 patients. It was an open, open label study. They either gave them hydroxychloroquine or placebo, and again, looked at viral clearance over a period of about 28 days. And in fact, there was no difference in viral clearance between the patients on hydroxychloroquine and the controls. However, the patients that were given hydroxychloroquine did have a reduced CRP, and they did have some attenuation of symptoms during the course of the disease. So this is really one of the first studies, even though it's open label, indicating that maybe patients felt a little better with hydroxychloroquine. Um, the fifth study is quite interesting. So it, this was a multi-center study. They retrospectively looked at patients in the vets who had COVID, and who had either been given hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin or both. And uh, they had about 368 patients. Um, about 99 got hydroxychloroquine, 113 got a mixture of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, and they looked at deaths. 
and there was no difference in the death rate between the active groups and the patients that got no, no drug treatment. So the death rate was the same. They also looked at ventilation rate, and there was also no difference in ventilation rate. So this is sort of, a, even though it's retrospective, it's sort of beginning to gather some information. There's been a recent study from Brazil looking at both high and low dose hydroxychloroquine in patients with COVID. And this group uh, had 80 patients, about 40 in each group, low dose, high dose. And we know high dose hydroxychloroquine as chloroquines have got problems, cardiovascular problems. And in this group, the high dose was associated with an increased death rate. So 40% of the patients in high dose died, whereas only 15% in low dose died. So that's where what we have at the moment. There are currently about over 80 RCTs that have been registered and currently ongoing. Most of those RCTs are in China. However, the World Health Organization has established a huge multinational study called the Solidarity Study, where they're going to be looking at various interventions, including antiviral drugs, the four subcategories, and of course, hydroxychloroquine is one. Thank you for that up to date. At the moment, I'm sure if we spoke next week, there'd be even more trials. And it's nice to hear that there are RCTs coming. Um, which raises a question. I know there are trials, and this is just for my curiosity, really. There are trials going on in Canada, and you, are any of your hospitals involved in any trials? Yes, I know our hospital here in Halifax is involved. I don't know um, how many across the country, but I think there's quite a few. Montreal is as, as well. McGill is. Yeah, and in fact, interestingly, the very beginning of this uh, pandemic, um, as patients were coming into the emergency room at McGill, um, they were put onto hydroxychloroquine immediately. So, uh, and then it was uh, it was stopped. So, it, it, people were very insecure and unsure. But I understand now that it's only administered in the setting of a clinical trial. Oh, that's good to hear. So that brings me to my final question. One of the motivations for writing this article was the possibility of a shortage for patients who are currently on it, or you believe with rheumatic disease had an indication during this time as we see new patients. Have any of you seen, had any of your patients commented to you that they've had difficulty in hydroxychloroquine. I mean, we know in Canada, we can't get chloroquine, but has anybody commented on a problem with getting hydroxychloroquine? Thanks uh, for that question. Some patients have been told by their pharmacists, uh, I know in Nova Scotia, that, uh, that there may be a problem and they've been limited to only getting 30-day supply. And early on, there was a definite drug uh, particularly in uh, felt hardest in Quebec, um, and that was due to a short burst of off-label prescribing, as Dr. Fitzgerald just described, 
and uh, some pa- some physicians even uh, self-prescribing for themselves and their family in anticipation that they might get sick. And some clinics were even stocking up on uh, hydroxychloroquine. This actually led to um, the uh, INES, which stands for the uh, Institut National d'Excellence en Santé et en Services Sociaux in Quebec, to issue a directive to restrict prescriptions of hydroxychloroquine uh, only to patients with lupus or pediatric patients, uh, pregnant women, and those with uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So since then, and through advocacy uh, by the Canadian Rheumatology Association, uh, with meeting with the manufacturers, um, there uh, the good news is that uh, there is a promise that the uh, producers of hydroxychloroquine will be able to meet the, the Canadian market demand. And uh, we anticipate that... Uh, there, there will be a resolution in the near future. But, uh, there was definitely a problem with distribution early on, um, but most manufacturers are ramping up their production to support the increased demand for the clinical trials and, and to meet the the need for our uh, our patients who've been on it for years. So just to that, that we, we do currently have a regulation from the... Uh, Pharmacists Association in Quebec. And um, the only way that a patient who does not fulfill those three criteria that Evelyn mentioned, um, such as a patient with palindromic rheumatism or rheumatoid arthritis, the only way these patients can access hydroxychloroquine is if the physician makes a special statement to the pharmacist. So uh, pharmacists are in Quebec are stopping prescribing or stopping dispensing hydroxychloroquine to all patients unless they fulfill the three criteria, which Evelyn said, lupus, pregnancy, and under the age of 18. What was good about uh, uh, this scenario, though, is that uh, the Minister of Health actually asked um, the Association of Rheumatologists in Quebec to form a committee to look at which are the most important groups to have the, the prescription filled for. So I think at least what was, it was, a proactive, it was a proactive process in regards to, you know, what our editorial was actually bringing up was that we're going to be, may potentially be faced with this issue. And actually in Quebec, rheumatologists were called upon to, to make that decision with the Ministry of Health. And so the, 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 you know, the, the life-threatening illness such as lupus, um, patients with pregnant disease, or pregnant patients with rheumatic disease who don't have who don't have many options in terms of their um, uh, safety with drugs were, were put on that list, and then juvenile idiopathic arthritis, where the amount of drug again availability is decreased. So um, at least rheumatologists were um, placed in the position to help the Ministry of Health to make that list. Certainly, it wasn't ideal because uh, a large group of patients, such as patients with rheumatoid arthritis, was left off that list. Um, but as Marianne had said, uh, we were able to still advocate for the patients who felt that required it by uh, making a special prescription for those patients. Thank you. So certainly, I was going to say, you know, um, it was mentioned by Dr. Sutton that 30-day limitation, and just you know, certainly in Ontario right now, all drugs are limited to 30 days. So hydroxychloroquine is not unique, certainly in Ontario. Um, so 
Currently, are patients with rheumatoid arthritis in Quebec allowed to get anti-malarial treatment? Yes, yes, they can. Um, as long as the physician has communicated with the pharmacist to say that this drug must be prescribed. Okay, thank you. Um, it was excellent, and I really want to thank you for the editorial answering my questions. Are there any other final points any one of you would like to add before we end this? Well, I just wanted to add that um, we're all we were all um, um, involved with the Canadian Rheumatology Association, and I just wanted to put a plug that they have been uh, quite uh, um, uh, on the forefront of this issue, uh, putting out. Um, uh, position statements, um, and I, I, you know, I feel that uh, you know that has supported the uh, Canadian community uh, overall on this issue. Thank you. <laughs> Good, Rosie. And I think we would like to thank the Journal of Rheumatology for really um, being so up upfront and uh, accelerating the editorial. Um, I must say that uh, I think it went ahead as the speed of light. So I'd like to thank you, Earl, and your team. Thank you. It's always nice to get compliments, so I'll accept it. <laughs> thank you. Dr. Sutton, anything before you, before I conclude? No, I, you... I echo, I echo uh, uh, Rosie's and Marianne's comments, and thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. So thanks, and I want to thank you all for the time. I found it very interesting and certainly enlightening. And for those who are listening, please read the full-length editorial entitled Hydroxychloroquine, An Ethical Dilemma for Rheumatologists During the COVID-19 Pandemic by Drs. Eskuchamari, Sutton, and Fitzcharles, as well as our other special editorials about the SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19 and its effects and implications for rheumatologists and rheumatology practice as a whole at www.jroom.org backslash COVID-19. If there are any questions or comments, please message us at Twitter at jroom or email us at manuscripts at jroom.com. And I want to thank you all for joining us and continue to follow the guidelines of your regional and national health authorities and be sure to maintain social distancing in order to keep you and your family safe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>